Welcome back to another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip. I'm your host, Benji Backer. We are here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan, with two incredible scientists and engineers uh, from, from the School of Nuclear Engineering, Todd Allen and Kelsey Green. Todd and Kelsey, can you each tell us who you are, what we're doing here, and what's being worked on on a broad sense, and then let's dive in. Sure. So I'm the chair of this department. It's called Nuclear Engineering and Radiological Sciences. I've been here almost two years. Uh, my background is I've spent time as an academic. I've been a senior executive at the Idaho National Laboratory. I've um, uh, worked at the research labs as a scientist, and I started out my career as a nuclear submarine officer. It's amazing. Kelsey? Um, yeah, so I'm a third year PhD student here. I'm actually one of Todd Allen's students. Um, and I do materials research uh, for structural components in advanced nuclear reactors. Awesome. So just to dive in right away, we're traveling the country right now for 50 days showcasing solutions to climate change. And what we believe is that if you, if you want to take climate change seriously, nuclear has to be a part of the equation. Do you guys agree with that? And if so, why? Yeah, so I agree, and some statistics people might not know. Right now, without changing anything, nuclear is 20% of the US electricity, and that's over half of the zero carbon electricity. Um, and that's, that's huge, right? And the second thing that I think is relevant is the first generation of nuclear that I just talked about, there was a single product, very large electricity production facilities, and you've got a large group of privately funded sort of entrepreneurial companies in the U.S. now that are looking at different types of big reactors, very small reactors um, outside of electricity. So within the past 10 years, nuclear has gone from what looked very much like a government laboratory driven process to something that looks very privately driven and, and creative and entrepreneurial. And so I think the, the combination of that creativity with a need for zero carbon energy sources broadly is driving a lot of people back into the conversation about nuclear. Yeah, Kelsey? Yeah, so I 100% agree. I'm very pro-nuclear. That's actually why I became a nuclear engineer, so I can have that technical background to, um, to help uh, shape policy for, for climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation. Um, one reason, too, just to kind of piggyback off of what Professor Allen was saying, that I really think nuclear energy will be important um, is because it allows for increased energy access for uh, developing nations as well. So you can industrialize and modernize your economies and your healthcare and education and, and so forth um, with clean energy. And I think that's really, really um, important as well. So on that note, Kelsey, I mean, you're probably either in the millennial or Gen Z. There's so, so many like, millennial. yeah, millennial generation. So. I'm a Gen Z or you're a millennial. A lot of people in our generations want to see action on climate, but don't know a lot about nuclear energy. And they, they're open to it, but they, it's complicated. So why should young people support nuclear energy and how can they be involved from an activist or engagement perspective? Yeah. Well, I think they should support all low carbon technologies. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, only pro nuclear, right. like I'm right. definitely pro renewable and carbon sequestration and so forth. So I think if you believe in mitigating and adapting to climate change, then you should believe in all of those kinds of technologies. Um, yeah, so I guess that would that would be my reason for that. Um, and how to be involved? I think right now everyone could definitely help keep the existing nuclear power plants in America open. There's a lot of young people who work on doing that a lot with the 
the American Nuclear Society. I don't know if there's any other organizations you can think of right now, Professor Allen, but a lot of young people are involved in that fight to keep those existing power plants open. And I think that's really important because if you don't keep those power plants open, we not, might not be able to get to the point where the advanced reactors that we were talking about can have an option to be deployed. Um, so I think that's one way. And to that point, Todd, nuclear has been something that we talked about earlier. It's had a lot of ups and downs over the years. Throughout your time in this space, what have you seen as the biggest benefit to having a university like Michigan uh, take the lead on something like this? And how, and how has that played an integral role in the development of nuclear technology? Yeah, so I think if you look through the, the sort of 50, 60 year history of nuclear in Michigan, so in the very early days, um, when we were just starting up the test reactor and starting the program, it was very involved in building the technology where there wasn't one. Okay. Um, as you get into the, say, 90s, right, at this point, we've got 100 commercial plants. Things are kind of on steady state. Um, and a lot of what the university did was, did was keep the knowledge of the technology alive, keep bringing new people in. Um, and then in the last decade, decade and a half, it's really there's this enthusiasm for a next generation of nuclear, um, bringing advanced technologies like the, the virtual reality demonstrator we put you through this morning, bringing those to nuclear. And I think it's bringing a lot of next generation folks in who are excited about the technology. And so I think you can follow the history of the department or any department around the country. And we've been critical in the startup phase, the maintenance phase, and now the renewal phase of nuclear energy. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think you know, when we've been traveling across the country, we've seen that these kind of public-private partnerships where it's either research institutions working with the government or with businesses or businesses working with the government or vice versa tend to be the most successful projects because you're allowing local communities to be a part of the result, but you're also engaging that national impact, which is obviously needed on a scope like uplifting people out of poverty with energy or lowering carbon emissions with energy. So. What has the University of Michigan done in terms of those public-private partnerships? And can you talk a little bit about some of the great partners you've had over the years and how that's played a role in developing the technology even faster than it would have maybe if it was done individually? Yes, I think right now, interestingly, there are order of magnitude 60, 70 of these private companies. And we've got research projects with a number of them. So we talked about TerraPower, uh, Kairos, um, X Energy sort of walk through the list, and there's in many cases we've got collaborative research projects with them. So we're helping them with their technology development. In some cases, we're doing things at the university level that may be slightly ahead of them. And one of the thing that's, things to me that's interesting about commercial companies is much more than the research community, they think about how do I get this thing onto the market soon? Mm. And sometimes that's not trying to solve a 60-year R&D problem, it's figuring out how to engineer around it. Right? But at the same time, we help them think about the product after the one they're trying to deploy. And so I think there's a tremendous amount of engagement. And of course, they're growing. They want our students as future employees. And so to the extent we get our students engaged in those pro projects, you've got a collaboration that helps us, it helps the company, it helps the students as they kick their careers on. In addition to that, we work a lot with national laboratories, too, who also work very closely with these startup companies. So I had a chance to work at Oak Ridge National Laboratory for two summers, um, and I had a lot of exposure to 
um, to people who worked at reactor, uh, startup reactor companies, as well as all the great research at the labs. So we have a really great partnership with them. Too. That's incredible. I think we're going to visit Oak Ridge in oh, a couple, couple awesome. in like a week or two. So that'll be. Go to MDF, the Manufacturing Demonstration Facility. Okay. It's awesome. MDF. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are 3D printing a reactor. Building. It is like wow. the state of the art in the world. It's really cool. Well, you guys have your own state of the art technology here at the University of Michigan. And to your point, Todd, that's really where the benefit is to a lot of these companies is that they don't have to create some of the state of the art technology while they're also trying to do a whole slew of other things. They can rely on a partnership with the university to get that done. And I think that's the power of this is that, you know, a company like TerraPower, which we've already interviewed, has incredible technology and technological technological advancements, but they're able to test some of their work here they're able to see if it's implementable safe and that's just something that can't be done they can't do it all and no one can do it all and i think this collaborative process of national labs in tennessee and 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 other parts of the country working with a a research institution in michigan working with a, a nuclear company from seattle is the power of of this project so i guess there's a lot of moving parts in this and there's probably been some hindrances to development of these technologies to both of you what do you think have been some of the most difficult obstacles that you've found in developing nuclear technology here at michigan and then also just in the bro- in the broader scope of the world do you want to go first or you want me to go? Oh, you can go first. Okay. So, so I think, I mean, if I'm a, a nuclear technology company, some of the challenges are we have a regulator that really only ever regulated a single product, right? And now we've got companies that are looking in many directions, right? So the regulator has had to figure out how to transition and be ready for all these. And, and honestly, um, they are working very hard at that, right? So I give them credit for all the effort they've put into sort of changing the way they they view the technology. So that's one. Um, I think that the entire nuclear enterprise grew up out of government programs, right? The first commercial reactors came out of the Navy submarine programs. And so commercial entrepreneurial nuclear was never a thing, right? So there's a lot of learning about how to do that, how to convince companies that finance things that there's a real possibility here, right? Um, And so, the last thing I think that had to change was the way the government research labs thought of themselves. Because for many years, they were kind of at the point of the project, and now they're transitioning to, in many cases, being supportive of private companies. Right? Use all that technology and knowledge that you have and be supportive. And then I, and I think the last part is in um, policy and advocacy. There never were a lot of NGOs and think tanks that were, were trying to figure out how to keep nuclear in the mix. And those have grown up in the last decade or so. Right? I happen to work with, with Third Way, but ClearPath is another one, Breakthrough Institute. There's a yeah. bunch that just became visible sort of over the last decade. So all these things have had to come together and figure out how to create an ecosystem to help move advanced nuclear forward and hopefully create an environment that folks like Kelsey can then sort of flourish in. Yeah, Uh, in addition to that, I would say just having continuous funding from the government as well. Some administrations haven't always um, continued support for nuclear. It's really important to have that continued support to your research. It takes a long time in the nuclear field. So, you know, you can research a project for 10 years sometimes. So it's important to to have that continued support. Um, 
And in addition to, I think having nuclear recognized as a low carbon source within clean energy standards um, on a policy level, whether that be a state level or, or a federal level, nuclear is not always recognized. Um, and I think it, it should be to help commercialize um, new reactors. So, Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up some of the organizations that are starting to work on this because Clear Path, Breakthrough are helping kind of move it, move the needle on the policy level in D.C. And it seems to me like there's a shift politically of support for nuclear energy. I mean, you had it on the Democratic Party platform for the first time in numerous decades. You're seeing people on both sides of the aisle start to engage on the issue. However, to your point, it's been hard to keep nuclear plants open. And you, you know, you, Kelsey, said that young people can play a role in helping keep those open. What what can young people do to advocate for that? And what role can they play in, in doing that? And, and honestly, tell them why it has been a problem to keep them open. Yeah, um, gosh. I think it's very state-specific how to be involved because every market is different. So correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Ohio. They were going to close, or was it Illinois? They were going to close plants down because of cert- certain market incentives did not make those nuclear power plants economic to continue to operate anymore. So they weren't going to apply um, for license extensions anymore because the market just just wasn't there for nuclear power. And I, I believe that a lot of people advocated to have nuclear energy recognized as a clean energy source and have some more government support for it and change the market incentives, and hence they were able to stay open. Um, and so I think people, I don't really know exactly what students did in Illinois. Do you remember? I know American Nuclear Society was really involved, um, so you can always look up your local chapter of American Nuclear Society to see how to be involved and always write to your, your Congress people as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that folks in my generation have to figure out. And I figured this out when I was on the uh, executive team at the Idaho National Lab. It's like if I bring you in as a visitor, um, and I want to convince you that there's a future and a story that you want to follow, then I have Kelsey give the tour, right? Sure. I, I really need, you know, I mean, it, it turned out to be true. People are much more, uh, they just get much more motivated when they see someone who's young and they're early in their career and they're like, I want to do this and it's important to me and here's why, right? Then a senior person who's seen as like defending the, the corporation, right? It's just a different feel to the story. Yeah, I'd say a lot of young people too that I meet, they go into it because they really believe nuclear energy has the potential to increase the quality of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Like that's why they really go into it. And so a lot of young people are really, really passionate and really, really dedicated to, to the field. Yeah, and that that is something that isn't always talked about with nuclear energy publicly is its impact, especially potential impact of helping developing countries and lifting them out of poverty much quicker than, you know, in years past, which I think is such, it, it can make such a huge impact, not just in the environmental space, but in the economic space as well. Uh, I guess one of the things that, and maybe, you know, is one of the final questions, it's kind of a tough question, but there's a lot of criticism from some people in the United States that nuclear is not going to be cost effective. We don't believe that's true at the Conservation Coalition. And can you talk a little bit about why that isn't true or why it shouldn't be true going forward? Yeah, so my take on that is, I mean, you can clearly look at the, the U.S. or the West's current attempt to build the, the very large reactors, and it's not going well. Right? So you look at that, and you can be skeptical, and I think that's fair. I think the nuclear engineering community, the things that have changed are one, is being driven by private companies. Um, So, you know, I like to say, 
if, if I'm looking at an advanced reactor from a research standpoint, I may say, well, I need to figure out how to create a material that'll last for 60 years, right? Whereas a commercial company would say, I don't need to do that. I need to replace the module every seven, right? right? It's just different, right? So they are driven to drive down costs because that's what a business person would do. I think that helps. Um, I think the fact that you have many different products that allows you into different markets potentially and you need people making the products driving the costs down and some of the hopes with the smaller reactors is you're selling more of them into more markets and therefore you should be able to do like every other technology drive costs down as you improve your manufacturing processes and build more of them got it yeah, um, I think people also forget that when we first started to make nuclear reactors in America, they were actually very cost effective. Mm -hmm. And then starting in the 80s and 90s, they got really cost prohibitive. Um, and you see that right now with the building of the AP-1000s in the South, it, it is over budget um, and it's taking a really long time. So like, like Professor Allen said, I don't blame people for saying, you know, it is too, too costly. Um, but there are countries right now, like South Korea, for instance, that build um, large light water reactors and they do it very cost efficiently. So we can also learn from lessons of other countries and, and try to apply that to not only new reactors, but if we also want to develop LWRs in, in developing countries, there are lessons to be learned to keep the cost down. Yeah, the other thing I'd add is I, I'll go back to when I was a kid, and if you asked anyone about solar or wind, it'd be like, ah, oh, it'll never happen, it's too, mm -hmm. too expensive, right? But through technology. advances in technology and, and developing markets and commercial competition, we drove the prices down like crazy, and I don't think that nuclear is any different, right? right? And so it's just, I, I think it's a question, are you serious? And will you do the things that, to, to bring the cost down? And I don't think there's anything magic about nuclear that makes it expensive. Um, certainly, if you don't build plants and you get out of practice and you're bad at it, you can be bad at it, but it does, I don't think it's inherent to the technology. It's just a learning curve. Yeah. Well, yeah. it just seems also like there are certain federal government decisions that have also hindered the growth of nuclear energy from not just technological aspect, but from an economic perspective. And obviously it's starting to hopefully be reversed now to really put nuclear on a, on a pedestal as an option uh, for fighting climate change and economic development. So we're almost out of time. One final question that I think, you know, hopefully will will end us on a good note, which is, what is the most fun and exciting part of your job that you wish people knew uh, about? And if if you can't cope with that, then what's the most fun and exciting part of nuclear in general that you wish people knew about? And I'll start with you, Kelsey. Sure. Um, well, I think just being able to research nuclear materials sounds really awesome and it is really awesome so in general I feel very very lucky to have a job that I love so much and to be able to work in a lab um, especially at the University of Michigan it's great um, and something people should be excited about um, I think nuclear also has a lot of non-power uses like hydrogen production for instance that I think in the future will allow for um, flexible and innovative operations of nuclear power so. Uh, and I would say the most exciting part about my job is to be able to create an environment where people like Kelsey can give you the enthusiastic answer she just gave. <laughs> well, you've done that, Todd, and that is amazing. And I won't make you answer to this, but our organization has decided that nuclear uh, whales are the future and that you need to put nuclear reactors on whales and that's going to power the clean energy future. Um, so n you don't have to make a comment on that, but... Uh, but that's that, the research program. It's the next 
research program for you, Kelsey. Uh, well, I, I really appreciate the chance to sit down with you. And touring this morning was amazing from the virtual reality to the nuts and bolts of kind of how you're working with TerraPower and some of the n national labs. This is going to be part of the future equation of fighting climate change and lifting people out of poverty. And you're at the forefront of, forefront of it. So I really want to thank you for your work. And, and hopefully you've got an entire career of this incredible technology ahead of you. Uh, but we're here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we cannot wait to see more nuclear facilities over the course of the rest of this trip. I want to thank the viewers for joining another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip. Again, I'm your host, Benji Backer, president and founder of the Conservation Coalition, and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you.